Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoyed the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. It's good to see you. Please take your Bibles if you have them, or you can go to esv.org, or there might be a Bible around you uh, somewhere. Go to Romans chapter 4. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians in that area of God's Word. We continue in our series on the five solas of the Reformation, kind of these five kind of rally cries, kind of announcements, declarations of essential uh, biblical Christianity. And we've been saying that these five things aren't just neat historical uh, landmarks that are interesting to know, but they really are uh, power and indeed needed for our everyday lives, for our personal lives, for our communal lives as, as a church body, and also for our missional lives, how we engage the world, how we evangelize. In the first week, we looked at Scripture alone, how sola scriptura, the Scriptures are our final authority in the Christian life, that no pastor, that no pope, no church, no seminary, only God's Word is the final authority here on earth in the life of Christians and in the church. Then we looked at why are we even saved? Because we were good? Because we did something? No. Sola gratia, by grace alone. And today we look at sola fide, faith alone. How are we saved? This is the great question of this morning. How are we saved? By being a member of a local church? By having some kind of spiritual experience by being baptized, by believing in predestination or some other Reformed doctrines? How are we really saved? And this matters for our mission and our evangelism. What do we tell people? How would you evangelize someone this week? What would you say to your fifth grader or three-year-old or seven-year-old or whoever, and they're asking, how can I be saved? What does it mean? How do you become a Christian? Do you know how you became a Christian if you are one? It is by faith alone. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Romans chapter 4. And since these words come to us today in the very authority of King Jesus, let's stand in his honor as we read from his word. It's as though we're hearing right from him. In verse 1, the Spirit says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes... In him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count none of his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. 
But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Well, he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he'd be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, of the faith is known and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Holy Father, now, would you help us by your spirit to bring this word into our hearts, that your people here today, your sheep, would rest in faith alone, would rejoice in faith in Christ alone. And Lord, you know, even those of us here who do not know you, who have not found salvation in Christ, would you be with them today, Lord? Would you save them? Would you grant them faith that they too may rejoice with how blessed it is against whom the one, the Lord, does not count his transgressions, whose lawless deeds and whose sins are forgiven. Help us, Lord, by your grace and by the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I said earlier, this is the question of the whole morning. How am I saved? This is the question that every Christian in this room must consider. Every Christian saved the same way. I mean, Paul just showed us, looking all the way back to Abraham, that there was not a different program for how Abraham was going to be saved. He was saved the same way that we are. How is that? And if you aren't a Christian today, I'm so glad that Jesus brought you here today. Because you need to hear the same thing that those of us who are already Christians need to hear. Because even within Christianity, 
there are churches that are gathering all around the world this morning. Even within the name of Christianity, there, are, there is confusion. Different programs are presented for how people can be saved. So we've we got to settle that. And then also without Christianity, out outside the walls of the church. There are all kinds of religions that say all different ways to be saved. But the Bible gives one way. And Christ presents himself as the way. The problem we face, though, is that even some professed Christians think there are other ways and methods of salvation. Is it being baptized? Some churches, some churches teach baptismal regeneration, that being baptized, that that's what saves you. Teaching that baptism saves is a demonic teaching. That is not Christianity. Some teach you got to have this spiritual euphoria, some kind of speaking in tongues kind of experience that that's what saves. That is a perversion of the gospel, and that too is not Christianity. So let's now get down to our level, because I don't suspect many of us believe baptism saves. Maybe, maybe there are some here. Or that having some ecstatic spiritual experience saves. What about us? How are you saved? If you're saved. Was it a sinner's prayer? Because you prayed a certain prayer, does that mean you're saved? Not at all. That would mean that you got the ball rolling in your salvation. The prayer didn't save. The baptism didn't save. The emotions you had that night in the dorm room didn't save. Or that last day at church camp in second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, every Friday night, those didn't save. Here's why I keep hammering this. When people are doubting their salvation in Christ, wondering or not if they're really saved, looking for assurance. I have too often heard personally, and I have too often heard other people say, no, remember you prayed the prayer. Oh, yeah. Or remember you were baptized. Or they say, oh, yeah, that's right. They wrote the date in my precious moments Bible when I prayed the prayer for me. There is no confidence to be had there. You should not put any confidence on a prayer you prayed. I have about as much confidence in a prayer I've prayed that I do that I wet paper bag and hold a steel ball. I have no confidence in these things. And then, so okay, we have people who are doubting. We need to make sure we tell them. And then we have other people who, they don't follow Jesus. They go to church on Christmas and Easter. They don't repent of sin. They don't read their Bibles. They don't pray. They don't wonder if not they're saved. They don't wonder whether or not they're saved. They think they're all good. And these are the people who should wonder if they're saved. But they're thinking, no, I'm good. I prayed the prayer. I was baptized. It's all good. The Bible says, no, it's not all good. It's not fine. So now to the people who are doubting and the people who should be doubting, when it comes to the question of how am I saved, how, why am I saved, if I'm in a counseling room, and it's happened, even, even right here, I'm counseling sometimes after the service, right up here, and the question comes up, I, I don't know, if I'm saved, I'm doubting, I followed up with the exact same question. If, I, if you were sitting in my office and you said, Jeff, I don't know if I'm saved, um, I would ask you a question. I would ask you, what do you believe right now? What do you believe right now, this moment, this second? Not what did you believe. What do you believe? If we go, ah, oh, remember you prayed the prayer. Ah, oh, remember when the, you were baptized. You got the baptism shirt. 
Remember all those emotions you had for Jesus, how you felt. That's really looking back at something you did, and it's not looking at Jesus. Faith is to look at Jesus, to look away from self and to look at Jesus, put all the confidence on Jesus and what he has done, not to look back at potential faith, not to look back at a potential good work or a fruit, but to look at faith now. So everyone in this room right now should be asking, what do I believe? What is your confidence that you're saved from your sins? What is your confidence that you can be saved from your sins? This is what Paul is telling us about our father Abraham, who had many sons, and you might be one of them with him. How are we saved? It's by faith alone. Look at verse 1. So Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He says, I'm a child of Abraham because I'm a Jew. But he's writing to Romans. You guys and us, we're Gentiles. We're not children of Abraham by flesh but by the Spirit, which he talks about later. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified, made righteous is what that word means, declared not guilty by works, by good deeds, by morality, by something he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So here's what Paul's saying. Hey, we all think Abraham's great. How is he really made righteous? And Abraham's kind of our test case. He says, if it was by good deeds... By works, his good outweighed his bad. He tried to be a good person. If that's how it worked, fine. He's got something to brag about among humans, but not before God. Because God is holy, perfect, righteous, and just. And another way we could say it is God isn't impressed by human attempts to sweat out righteousness. God isn't impressed by our sweat equity to be good people. Because we're sinful people. We may do nice things. We can be moral, but there's always an undercoating of sin underneath. It's like you're, if you were trying to sell your house, and your realtor comes over, and uh, he, he, you know, he's somebody who hasn't been in your house before, and all your other friends, they don't notice it, but they go, man, you have, you have black mold on this one wall in your house. Ooh. You know, okay, well, we got to you know, get the excavation crew. We got some hazmat stuff going on. And you go, no, 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 here's what we'll do. Let's just paint it. Let's paint it, and let's hang an original Van Gogh over the black mold. Not a print. We're not going to Hobby Lobby to get a print. We're going to get an original Van Gogh, and we're going to hang it over, super valuable, over that black mold. Okay, we're good. No, there was still an undercoating of death. That didn't fix anything. All that morality and good works does in our life, that's all staging. That's all staging to sell the house, and God's not buying that. He's not convinced. He knows there's an undercoating of wickedness underneath. And that matters today. Because even right now in this room, there might be people who still think, I I can be good enough. Surely I'm good enough and God will let me in. There are people in our families, there are people in our communities and our workplaces, our friends who think that being a good person will be enough. And Abraham is a powerful example that you can't be good enough. He just said it. It doesn't work. And this really helps for all major three world religions. I'll look back at Abraham. Christianity, we're talking about Abraham. Judaism, they're going to talk about Abraham. And even Islam, they're going to talk about Abraham. So all three of us, we can get in a room and go, great, let's talk about Father Abraham. How was he made righteous? How was he declared not guilty? How was he saved from his sins? Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Man, I love that phrase. So we talked about the first sermon in the series, Sola Scriptura. What do the scriptures say? Paul's appealing, even the Bible is appealing to itself. 
Paul says, let's look at God's word. This is the phrase we need to have in our church. What does the Bible say? What do the scriptures say? Paul's argument would be severely weakened if he said, here's what I think. But no, he says, what does the Bible say? Verse 3, a quotation from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the money shot. The swish. Genesis 15, 6, he quotes it. Er, Abraham was living in Ur. He was a moon worshiper, did not know God at all. God shows up to him and says, Abraham, I want you to follow me to a land that you don't know, and I'll show you. He says, okay. Amazing. Hey, follow me. Let's go. All right. Where are we going? I'll show you. Okay. Jesus shows up to Peter. Why don't you drop your business? Follow me. Okay. They go. He tells Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. You're going to have more offspring than you can imagine. Oh, wow. But then he tells God and Abraham are talking. And Abraham tells God, I don't have any offspring. I don't have any kids. I don't, I, I don't even have an heir. And look, my body's as good as dead. I'm 100 years old. So I hope there's no 100-year-olds super offended. It's, look, I, I'm well past childbearing years. Sarah's womb, it's done. We're, no way we're going to have any kids of our own. And God says, hey, why don't you look up at the stars? Now, we don't realize this, but at night, there are stars out in the sky in Houston. We don't understand this. You can see, I mean, just imagine what it would have looked like 4,000 years ago, or however long ago this was. How bright the sky would have been. Stars everywhere. And God says, look at that. That's how many your offspring are going to be. And Abraham hears that and he's looking. And instead of going, "Eh, I don't know. That's a lot. I'm pretty old. I don't know how this is going to work. The Bible says right there, then, in that moment, Genesis 15, he heard God say that. He's looking and he says, he believed. He believed God in that moment. I do believe that's how many my offspring is going to be. I'm going to be the father of many nations. I, I believe it. And God says then he counted it right then. Righteousness became his. Then and there. This is an accounting term. It was counted. It was wired to him. Your Bible might say reckoned to him. It was received to him. So something was reckoned to Abraham's life. Not because of his works. Not because of his good deeds, not because of his achievements, not because of his impressiveness, but because of faith. He believed God. It was added to him. This is one important thing we need to clear up about faith. This is really important. Luther, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, said that justification by faith alone, being made righteous. I know that word justification, justify, we heard it even a lot this morning. That sounds like a kind of a big word. Listen, there's real power in these words. These are words from the Scripture, so we, sh- we should know them and believe them and love them. And they're not complicated. If you can order a drink at Starbucks, you can learn Bible words. Okay? I, I, have, faith. I have faith in you. Justification is a courtroom term. That means you've been declared not guilty. Not guilty. And Martin Luther says that this term, justification, by faith alone, not by works, this is the article by which the church stands or falls. That this truth is the cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. And without it, the church of God cannot stand an hour. Serious. So apply it to your own life. This is the doctrine by which your life really stands or falls, waxes or wanes. This is how your life is nourished, 
built up, preserved, and protected. This is what what keeps you sane. This is what keeps you from going off the rails. This is what keeps you calm and and secure. So here's what it is. This is going to be a little difficult to understand. So I want you to think hard. Nine o'clock, had a little trouble with this. You're the 11. You've had coffee. You've been awake. I, I, I know we can do this. Faith. Faith is not the coupon we show to God. And then God says, okay, cool. Here you go. Here's some righteousness. Faith is not the voucher we present to God, and God says, okay, you've got faith. Okay, here's your righteousness. Faith is not the bargaining chip that we give God. And he goes, all right, righteousness is yours. Faith isn't the reason we are made righteous. Faith is the receiving of Christ's righteousness. Faith is not the reason you are made righteous. Faith is the receiving of righteousness. This may seem like a small matter, but it is a big difference. Because if faith is a voucher for your salvation, then you are the one coming to God and saying, give me what's mine. But if faith is the empty-handed receiving of the righteousness of Christ, it is all by His grace. It is all by His goodness. It is all by His sheer love for sinners like us. This is what we talked about last week. Last week was why are we saved? Grace alone. We didn't deserve it. This is grace. This week is how are we saved? It's by faith alone. Faith is the empty-handed. You didn't do anything. This hand's empty. I have nothing to offer you. And faith is the empty-handed receiving of the righteousness of Christ. And it must be because verses 4 through 5, Paul is supporting this. Look at verse 4. And he gives a real-world example that everyone in this room would understand. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages, your paycheck, they're not counted as a gift. It's your due. It's what's owed to you. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies, declares not guilty, the guilty, the ungodly, His faith is counted, reckoned, wired as righteousness. So how are we saved? By faith, period. Faith, period. I mean, really, this easy? To the one who does not work but believes this simple, this non-complicated, this is it? Yes. I remember sitting with a Buddhist friend who was all about karma and do better, be good, follow the eightfold path, be a good enough person. And we're reading the Bible together and we read Ephesians 2. It says, we're dead in our sins, but God being rich in mercy saves us. And she stops and says, is it really this easy? This simple? You just believe? I said, yes. She goes, I'm in. I'll take it. This is the wild message of Christianity that we must reclaim, that we must announce, and that we must make recognizable in Tomball and beyond. Because maybe once we grasp this in our own lives, that it really is by faith alone, maybe then revival will happen in our area again. Maybe a reformation will occur again. That God justifies, verse 5, the ungodly believes in him that he'll justify the ungodly. It means solidly convinced, knows that God justifies the ungodly. And I think every Christian in this room should hear that verse and go, hallelujah, praise the Lord, God saves the ungodly. 
because we are ungodly. I am ungodly. I don't deserve anything. Christians, we don't think we're better people than anyone. We are just the people who admit how terrible we are and that we need Jesus. I need his grace. I need his death. That's me. Ungodly. That's me. And God will save me. And justify is right then, one moment. It's courtroom. It's done. This is not the, an exoneration. You get exonerated, it's like, oh, you're, you're called guilty, but then new DNA evidence came out. Oh, yeah, all right, he's exonerated. He's, he's been, we're reversing it. He's out. Whew. No, I, I really didn't do it. I'm free. This is not how this works. We really did do the crimes. We really are guilty. We really are ungodly. So this is not exoneration. This is not an overturning of a conviction. This is a justification. It's I'm looking at you. I know you're guilty, but I will declare you not guilty if my son pays for your crimes in your place, for your sins. We're guilty, but Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll take your sins. You take my life, my righteousness, and now you are not guilty. This is how freeing Christianity is, how liberating, how joy-inducing that by Christ alone, Christ alone, by faith alone, God will justify the ungodly. And this is the core message of Christianity that the world needs to hear, that your kids need to hear, that your coworker needs to hear this week, that your angry at God grandmother needs to hear, that your atheistic sibling needs to hear, that your wayward child needs to hear, that by faith alone, God saves the ungodly. If you know you're ungodly, a sinful, spiritual, moral failure. God is willing to declare you righteous, not guilty of your sins, and make you a spiritual and moral victor by substituting Jesus' life onto yours. This is why Jesus died. Not to just be a good example to the world, not to be some kind of martyr to show that peace is the way, but to pay for sins. As 1 Peter 2 says, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile, and he turned. So he's really laying out three, two ways that we sin in our lives. We actively sin, and we reactively sin. But Peter says Jesus did not actively sin, and Jesus did not reactively sin. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. This is what's happening on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Have you been healed? Did he bear your sins in his body on the tree? How can you know? Oh, I prayed the prayer. Oh, I was baptized. No, no, no. What do you believe right now? Faith in Jesus. This is what faith alone is all about. Jesus, faith in Jesus is the assurance. I love how Sinclair Ferguson defines faith. He says, faith is simply a shorthand description of abandoning oneself trustingly to Christ. It's abandoning oneself trustingly to Christ. It's a, it's a cosmic trust fall into Christ. We don't have faith in faith. That's what, oh yeah, prayer. That's a faith in faith. 
Oh, baptism. We don't put confidence in our confidence. But in Jesus, and far too many Christians in the Bible Belt need to be saved from their Christianity and saved to Christ. By faith alone, in Christ alone. Because as we've been saying, faith is not a one-time thing. Oh, I had faith back in fifth grade. I'm good. That wasn't faith. That was a profession of faith. But having, but believed, like, oh, I believed, and believing, these are eternities apart. Saying you believe and saying you believed and believing are eternities apart. Because Paul just shows us that Abraham continued to trust God. He kept walking with God, had faith in the promises of God. He didn't believe God there as he looked at the stars and said, all right, cool, that's great. I'll see you in heaven. No, he kept walking with God. He kept believing God. Verse 19, he didn't weaken in faith. He didn't walk away when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. None of these things made him waver. No, verse 20, no unbelief. I mean, God promised him he's going to have an offspring. He doesn't have a kid. He's about 100 years old. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, I love this, fully convinced. I I underlined that in my Bible. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Are you fully convinced? Are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised? What he said he would do for you? What he said he could do for you? Are you fully convinced that God will forgive you? Are you fully convinced that God has forgiven you? Are you fully convinced that he has declared you righteous in Christ? Are you fully convinced that you are a co-heir with Christ? Are you fully convinced that you one day will be raised from the dead? Are you fully convinced that you are now condemnation free? Are you fully convinced that you will live forever on the new earth with Jesus, with all those who have called upon the name of the Lord? Are you fully convinced that God is able to do what he has said he will do for you in Christ? Abraham is an example for us. Look at verse 22. That is why his faith was counted, reckoned, wired, received to him as righteousness. Verse 23, but... The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Genesis 15, 6 was written for you. God has superintended the words that Moses wrote down thousands of years ago would have a bearing on your life right now, this moment. That you would benefit from Genesis 15, 6. God wants you to know something. I mean, even more than that, God wants you to believe something. He wants to add steel, rebar to your faith and your life and your walk and your joy. And maybe God wants to even save you this morning. So what are we to believe? What is our faith in? Abraham's was looking at the stars and the, whatever God had told him and promised him. What is our promise? Verse 24. It will be counted to us. So we're now done talking about Abraham. Paul says, let's look at us. 
It will be counted to us, reckoned to us, received to us, wired to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we, Christians, we are the people who believe that in the first century, a Galilean was nailed to a cross outside of Jerusalem at a place called the Skull, and that he died to pay for sins. His body was put in a tomb, and that he didn't stay that way. That his body went from being a cold, lifeless corpse to a warm, blood-pumping, brain-functioning, resurrected Savior and Lord. This is Christianity. And if you believe that, it doesn't matter what you've done. There are no asterisks unless you did this. If you believe that, you are counted as righteous, justified right now. However much Jesus is alive in the heavenly places, that's how much you are justified. You aren't like halfway declared righteous. Because Jesus isn't a halfway resurrected Lord. He is fully alive, so you are fully justified. That's why he says he was raised for our justification. If he's raised, you're justified. If he's dead, you're dead. You're guilty. But there's an important detail here that we can't miss. It's a tiny word. But this little tiny word carries a lot of weight. It was repeated four times in two verses. The word are. Four times, two verses. Verse 24, but it was written for our sake also. 24 again, Jesus our Lord. 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Raised for our justification. So this whole time, we've been kind of looking at Abraham, case study. Paul says, we're done with case study. Let's look at ourselves. Let's get real with our hearts. So this word are shows us you can't merely acknowledge that Jesus died and rose again. That's not saving faith. Demons know that Jesus died and rose again. Satan is fully aware of what Jesus has done. So if that's all you believe, you have about enough faith to be a demon. That's all you're qualified for. This word R changes it. This word R, this word R takes us beyond data, historical recognition, and brings us into the heart of the gospel. That faith alone realizes three things that God did in the gospel of the of first importance message of the Bible. These are the three things that we must believe. It's number one, Jesus was delivered up on the cross, nailed, killed, offered for my sin. Not just some generic Savior. He was delivered up for my trespasses. So when you read about the crucifixion, when you think about the cross, when you see a cross, when we sang about the cross that your love shines at Calvary, we are saying, Jesus paid for my sins there. It was for me that he went. My Savior paying for my sins, my crimes, the death I deserved, he took, delivered up for our trespasses. Secondly, Jesus was raised from the dead for me, ensuring and proving and securing the reality that we're made righteous by him. And this wasn't some ghostly resurrection, like some kind of just kind of spirit floating around. No, this was a mangled body from Friday 
was turned back on, glorified Easter Sunday morning. And this is what's so crazy about Christianity. It's easy to kind of talk about normal conversation. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I believe that, you know, Jesus died. Do you think he's alive? Well, you're not Christian. Believe he was delivered up and that he was raised. And that God raised from the dead our Lord Jesus. Really died, really alive. You must believe it right now. And because he's alive, I'm justified. And listen, however much God the Father approves of Jesus, by faith, that's how much he approves of you. You gotta hear that. However much God the Father approves of Jesus, that's how much he approves of you. He was raised, not for his justification, for ours. So you can never be more justified. You can never be less justified. And listen, this is, this is what's so crazy to me. I was thinking about it this week as I was sitting on the beltway. When you're sitting in traffic tomorrow on your way to work, on 290 especially, you are sitting in traffic as someone who has been declared righteous before God. I'm sitting in traffic thinking, this is horrible. And then it struck me, he was raised for my justification. If Jesus is alive right now, and he is, then I'm justified. I'm sitting on 290 as someone who has been declared righteous, not guilty before God. When you sit back on your couch tonight and you're watching Netflix, feet propped up, kids in bed, you're sitting there as someone who has been declared righteous by Jesus. Every moment now of your life is filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when that hits you, you can consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You, are, you see yourself, I'm no longer a slave to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over me. I no longer am chained to pornography. I am no longer enslaved to the temptations and whims of my life. I am no longer chained to materialism and the world and the things that this world offers. I am now an ambassador of the heavenly realms. I am righteous in King Jesus. And because of that, you don't have to impress anybody. This is what's amazing to me now about you being made righteous in Christ. When you're at the office tomorrow, and you're a Christian, and there's guys, you know, making inappropriate jokes or whatever, and you're just kind of standing there, but you kind of want to fit in, and you're like, Ugh, I don't want to be like the weird guy, so you kind of say something to them. You don't have to do that. You don't have to claw for significance. You don't have to fight for their approval. You don't have to try to impress anyone because you rest in Christ. I'm righteous in Christ. The last or is in verse 24. He raised from the dead Jesus. He could have left it there and it would have been theologically true. But what does Paul add? What does he want us to see? Jesus our Lord. So Jesus is my Savior. I believe he died for my sins. This is the continuing of faith. It's not Jesus is my Savior. Thank you. I'll see you later. No, he is our Lord, the Lord of our life. Trusting Jesus alone, abandoning self into Christ and receiving Christ as Savior, God, King, Friend, Redeemer, Substitute, and Lord. We follow him as Lord. This is the we live by faith. We are saved by faith, by faith, 
and we live by faith. As we said earlier, faith isn't a one-time thing. We walk by faith. We live by faith. We can say it like this. We walk by believing that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Now you live out your life. You serve your wife. You love your kids. You love your neighbor. You live by faith that Jesus was delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification. I love Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live. So that was kind of justification, one-time thing. Sanctification is the continual Christian life. I live by faith in my prayer. I live by faith in my baptism. No. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, who was delivered up for my trespasses and raised for my justification. We live by faith in Christ. In Christ. That's kind of a double in Christ. Our faith is in Christ, and I'm in Christ, having faith in Christ. And Christ in us. We aren't saved by works. We aren't saved by good works. Even the good works that do follow. Every time we talk about faith alone, we always have to remember this last part. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And we can't get this confused. Because when assurance and doubts and wondering, am I really saved? What we start doing is we start looking at fruits. And Jesus did say, you will know them by their fruit. But good works do not save. Good works show that we are saved. James says faith without works is dead. That's harsh to hear. Faith without works is dead. So if your faith in Christ, your faith in, he's my Lord, he was raised from the dead for my sins, raised from, he was delivered up for my trespasses and raised for my justification, if that never moves you to live for the glory of God, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and to love and serve others, the Bible says you don't have faith. That your faith is dead. You have a profession of faith. But listen, a profession of faith without progress in the faith is a dead faith. A profession of faith without progress in the faith is a dead faith. A profession of faith without produce, fruit from the faith, is a fake faith. What good works, they can, so let's ask about our lives. What good works in your life that you can look at, point to, that have been nurtured by the soil of being in Christ Jesus? This is John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You are connected to me, and he who is with me bears much fruit. So that fruit isn't what saves. The fruit is showing who we're connected to. The fruit is from faith. Good works don't save you. They come after you're saved. But there should be regular, normal things in our life that go, yeah, I did that because I'm a Christian. I didn't do that because I wanted you to like me. I didn't do that because I'm supposed to. I did it because I'm a Christian. Because I believe that Jesus was delivered up for my trespasses and raised for my justification. When you're doubting, and we, we have to keep these in order. They can get confusing. If you get caught up in the folly of Adam and Eve and begin to trust fruit over faith, you'll be in trouble. 
In the same way, when I go, oh, my dad, well, let me pile up all my fruits. There's danger there because you're not going to have as much fruit as this person. You might be in a uh, little drought season. There's a reason why Jesus uses the farming analogy. This is, spiritual growth is organic. There's no chemicals involved here. You know, like when restaurants, they have, uh, we don't have strawberries because they're not in season. There's a reason. Because you have strawberries that aren't in season, man, they go bad really fast. They get really mushy and oily and slimy. They're gross. I think our spiritual lives are the same way. There are hills, valleys, seasons of growth. So if your tree is really slender, what you need to do is look at and remember the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So when temptation comes, when a hurricane of doubt and condemnation and suffering, if a hurricane attacks a tree, an apple tree, an apple orchard, I bet a farmer's not looking at the apple orchard and going, man, those apples, they better keep that tree down. I'm glad those apples are there because those apples are going to protect that tree. No, those apples are going to go flying. The confidence is in the roots, in Christ alone. So you look at your life and go, no, I don't have faith, in a confidence in a prayer, confidence in a baptism, even ultimate confidence in a good work that I've done. It's only in Christ alone. Personal, communal. We remind each other when we're suffering, when we're confessing sin, when we're doubting, we remind each other. Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. Not your good works, but for comfort, for peace, for security. Look to Jesus. And maybe today you need to believe for the first time. Maybe you don't believe. Faith alone and Christ alone is how you can be saved. None of your works. Jesus is our confidence till the end. And he should be your confidence till the end. As Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and here it is, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared not guilty, righteous, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together.